This is the Child Welfare Information Gateway Podcast, a place for those who care about strengthening families and protecting children. You'll hear about the innovations, emerging trends, and success stories across child welfare, direct from those striving to make a difference. This is your place for new ideas and information to support your work to improve the lives of children, youth, and families. An estimated one-third of the nation's homeless population are families with children. And that's a huge issue for child welfare because inadequate and unstable housing increase the risk of things like a family entering the child welfare system, of children entering foster care, and delays in reunification. Hi everyone, Tom Oates here, and welcome to the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. And this is part one of a two-part conversation around housing's critical connection to child welfare and an example of how, in perhaps the nation's most challenging area for housing, a structured partnership is working to help families obtain safe and affordable housing and sustain it. Now, safe, stable, and affordable housing is a huge endeavor for child welfare to respond to. And we're talking beyond the stereotypical living on the streets, but also families with insecure housing, living doubled up with friends or family, or trying to make home out of a hotel room. Now, young families with newborns and, and infants and young children, they are among the most likely to experience housing instability. You know, almost half of the children in shelters are under six years old, and experiencing homelessness can be harmful to a child's development. So what is the already overworked child welfare field to do? Well, as part of a Children's Bureau grant, a series of agencies developed and strengthened partnerships with local housing authorities and housing support organizations to do things like help families navigate the complex housing system and obtain housing vouchers, work to locate and secure affordable housing, and support the families through the transition into the new home and remain connected to help those families sustain that safe and affordable housing. And if there is a place to dive into the need head first, the San Francisco Bay Area may be one of the most challenging. It's one of the nation's costliest places to live. The San Francisco Human Services Agency partnered with the Homeless Prenatal Program and the San Francisco Housing Authority for a program called Families Moving Forward. And so this is where we're going with our two-part series on housing. We talked with Kylie Woodall from the Homeless Prenatal Program and Jocelyn Everrode from the San Francisco Human Services Agency to break down how housing specialists and child welfare caseworkers work together. Now, their work is featured in a new Gateway publication titled Partnering with Housing Providers in Your Community, and that's available on childwelfare.gov. I want you to listen to how the two differ in their relationship with families, particularly in how much time each works with families and how they communicate to help families navigate their child welfare case plan. And we also talk about transitional housing and how that became critical to the program's ability to support families. Now, in part two, we'll get into the roles and responsibilities shared between housing specialists, the San Francisco Housing Authority, and the Child Welfare Agency, along with how they communicate and improved the project over time. And this is such an important subject as family stability is so strongly connected to housing stability. All right, here's part one of our two-part series on housing, featuring families moving forward with Kylie Woodall and Jocelyn Everrode. 
Jocelyn and Kylie, thanks so much for being a part of the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. Our pleasure. So let's, so, well, we're pleased to have you. And because we think this is a really important conversation to have. And so I want to give a sense for those, particularly in the child welfare field, to understand while housing is important and we see it within the cycle of, of, of poverty that can potentially, you know, increase the risk for, for abuse and neglect or getting involved in the child welfare system. But I'd like you to Give me a deeper sense of the impacts that housing instability can have on that community. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I can answer that on two different levels. I think, um, you know, to begin with, as you mentioned, there's a growing body of literature that kind of supports the impact of housing on positive child welfare outcomes and also just in general of uh, child development. And one thing particular is that we know that that is in some ways the most urgent at, in the early years of a child's life. So for the youngest children, it can take on the most urgency. And in many cases, those are the children that we see um, frequently in the child welfare system. So I think, uh, you know, in, in in many ways, it's it's important. I think just if you think about it intuitively as well, uh, when families come into the child welfare system, uh, they have so many things that they need to look at. So. Um, we're asking them to address a whole host of issues that is going to increase safety for their children and, and ultimately strengthen their parenting capabilities. Uh, but housing in and of itself can be a full-time job. If you're not stably housed, if you think about the amount of time it can just take to, to move, between, um, a shelter, move between shelters, to make sure that you have a place to stay every night, um, and, and to really sort of um, focus on on the very basic needs of your family, that can take up all your time. So in order to create the most successful platform possible for families, it's really helpful if we can provide them a stable place from which to address all of the other concerns. Um, So that's really what we were looking to do here is uh, look at a way um, for families to really focus on strengthening the family um, and not spend a lot of time on just making sure that they had their day-to-day necessities covered. So for you and HSA, where is the real value that partnering with housing specialists come? That's a great question. So, you know, for many years, we've actually had uh, housing vouchers from the San Francisco Housing Authority as part of the Family Unification Program. So we have had this wonderful resource where we've been able to give families the opportunity to find a home. but that is a very complex process. Um, you know, of necessity, finding the correct documents to apply for the voucher, um, and then actually finding uh, finding a house that, that will accept that voucher. And we'll talk in a lot of detail um, later on, I think, about the sort of the sheer complexity that can go into that. But what we were finding is that the vouchers were expiring um, at a much higher rate than we would want. So we would give families this amazing opportunity, and they wouldn't be able to capitalize on it. And you know, there's two huge costs. Uh, the biggest and most important cost is the human cost to give somebody a voucher where they get so close to getting that stability and then aren't able to actually uh, complete that opportunity um, is just heartbreaking. You know, it's, it's heartbreaking to see and it's not something that we want to be a part of. And then I think the, the second part of that is just from, a, um, you know, if you think about the, the smartest use of public dollars, uh, to have the administrative cost of uh, you know, issuing these vouchers again and again, tracking them, rescinding them, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. So this really allows us to put our resources where they're most valued and most important, which is sort of helping families get to that stable state. 
So walk me through that process. I mean, of you've got your side with child welfare, but then working with a, a group like uh, HPP and Kylie. How does that relationship work when you are in, when a family is involved? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think one of the amazing things about this project, and again, we can talk about that in more detail later, has really been how close the working relationships have become among the human services agency, who's obviously um, the agency in the city that does both child welfare but other entitlement programs as well. Um, our 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 contractor, our partner, um, the homeless prenatal program, which we'll hear from a lot in a lot more detail later, and then also the the San Francisco Housing Authority. We've really developed both uh, personal and professional um, relationships that really uh, help a lot of this. So I'm going to talk about sort of the systemic way that we do things. But I don't want to lose sight of the fact that there's a whole lot of connective tissue where we just pick up the phone and call each other. Um, and that's been that's been a huge help as well. Like, you know, I think one of the things that we've learned through doing this project is um, no matter how many things you try to set forth in terms of this is our operating procedure, you're going to constantly find situations that challenge that. And and you're going to constantly find families where we're like, well, we didn't think about how to handle this situation. So there's a lot of, like, I'll talk through in a minute, just sort of what we do in terms of serving these families and figuring out which families to serve. But uh, I just don't want to lose sight of that point. And then I think, um, you know, what we do, uh, obviously, the first thing we do is is find the families to help. And one of the things that we really wanted to do as part of families moving forward is make sure that we got to every family that needed the resource. So obviously our, our child welfare workers bring an amazing amount of um, value to, they're very skilled in working with our families, but we didn't want it to be a question of chance in terms of who came to the attention of this program. We didn't want it to be, you know, whose workers had heard through word of mouth that this was out there, who had the strongest advocate, which family uh, a worker thought had the greatest chance of succeeding. So what we ended up doing is putting a couple things in place to make sure that we were catching every family who was eligible. And we really did that um, working with our policy team uh, and our planning team by going into the data and actually doing monthly reports so that we could see, you know, we have a couple criteria for the program. You have to be homeless. You have to um, have certain uh, additional complicating factors and you have to have an open child welfare case. So we were actually, one of the very early things we did in this project is um, make sure that we were capturing the housing status of every single person who came into our agency. And we were actually able on a monthly basis to go through and see, hey, these are the six families that should qualify for this program. And in many cases, the workers had referred the families, but in the cases where they hadn't referred the families, we were actually able to use that as a starting point for a dialogue with the workers saying, hey, why didn't you refer this family? Let's talk through this. I'm trying to get the family in the program, but also trying to change behavior and sort of use that as a, a point to sort of spread the word of this program. So one of the things that um, we did to start uh, is obviously we were very, um, we were very conscious of the housing first approach and really wanting to make sure that we were giving folks the chance to have housing as a platform from the outset of their case. So when we started, we were really referring families um, as soon as they came through the door. So as soon within 30 days of them opening a case, we wanted them to be working with a housing specialist. 
we actually found um, that created a whole lot of complexity uh, that didn't end up feeling like it, it was worth it in some ways. And, and what I mean by that is um, there were a couple issues that we were referring families before we really understood the facts of the case. We didn't necessarily understand which parent, you know, it takes a while often for the for the family situation to really be fully understood. So um, the other thing from a child welfare perspective is we have um, some rapid transfers from, you know, as, as the family moves towards their ultimate social worker, they go through a series of transitions. And so what we ended up saying is, you know what, it doesn't make sense to refer these families right out of the gate. Um, we're going to wait a little bit of time and then we're going to refer them um, once their situation is a little better understood. So in we've talked a little bit about families moving forward and then bringing, bringing families home. Once we transitioned to bringing families home, which is sort of our second iteration of the program, we did start referring families a little bit later. So after they had had the chance to, to begin the stabilization process. Um, one of our concerns with that is obviously the folks who are most likely to then be referred to the program are the ones who have succeeded in the early stages. And we don't want that permanently to be an aspect of this program. So down the road, what we are looking at doing is um, creating sort of a separate path where families who may not, where we don't necessarily yet understand um, who the custodial parent is or sort of some of the other potential complicating factors, um, we want to make sure that we have a housing program for them too, um, but that's kind of sort of being a phase two of this program we write. And then the final thing I'll say, and I apologize, I, I should have said this earlier, is that another one of the, the complicating factors was really uh, that many of our families, we wanted to take everyone, um, and that meant that many of our families were actually entering treatment, um, often inpatient treatment, and some families were incarcerated. So again, starting the family on a housing program when they were still in these very prescriptive programs of um, of treatment or of, in, of incarceration, that ended up not being the right approach for us. Um, so when we started, we thought that that was going to be a benefit because it would advance housing, um, but it ended up actually um, not feeling productive. So we've waited a little bit now um, and we're doing it at a later date, which is a very long-winded way of saying, we find the families, we try to find everyone, and then, you know, we make sure that uh, we send them over to the homeless prenatal program to begin working with the housing specialist. So I'm going to pass you over to Kylie um, to talk a little bit more about that. So once um, HSA refers a family to HPP, what happens is we have an orientation for the family. So they meet with um, their case manager at HPP. So they have me as a housing specialist or one of the other three housing specialists that I work with now um, and a case manager. So we have two support people at where I work, the homeless prenatal program, working with the family. Um, the case manager, um, it's a parallel track with me working, focusing on finding housing for the family, where the case manager um, is able to support the family specifically with addressing what's on their case plan. Because like following a case plan with child welfare um, can be pretty complicated. You have to make sure that you're going to all your visits, have the proper transportation, make sure you're doing all the classes, not missing any testing if that's required. So we have the case manager there as like the advocate for the family um, to help them work on like auxiliary goals to housing too, like finding childcare and setting up all those things. Um, and that case manager, I just want to point out too, while I'm doing everything that I'm about to say that I'm doing, 
is there having family team meetings once a month with um, the child welfare worker, making sure that the child welfare worker is updated on what the family is doing with our agency and making sure that everyone's all on board and on the same page with what everyone needs to be doing to get the, to the end goal of both being housed and closing child welfare involvement. So that's what the case manager is doing. Um, and then what I do is once a family is referred into our agency, the first thing that we have to do is make sure that they have all their vital documents for their Section 8 application. For families who are coming from the street, from the shelter, from going from couch to couch, from being in residential drug treatment program, from going from being incarcerated to back on the street, um, it can be really hard to have all of your vital documents, making sure that you have your all of your kids' birth certificates, their social security cards, um, and that can be kind of like a domino process where you can't get all of your vital documents unless you have one to start with. So you have to get your ID, to get your birth certificate, to get your security card, or vice versa. Um, so that's one way that case managers support with making sure that the family can go to the Social Security Administration, get the cards that they need. That's one point where the partnership with HSA is really beneficial because we can ask the child welfare worker if they have access to the kids' Social Security cards or birth certificates. Um, that can take a few weeks to a month for some families to make sure they get everything because you have mail delays for getting the ID and whatnot. Um, but once we have all the vital documents, I meet with the family or another housing specialist and we complete the Section 8 application. We have a point person um, at San Francisco Housing Authority, which has been a huge benefit to our program, who is the person that takes in all of the FUB applications, meets with the family. It's someone that I can call who always answers the phone, replies to every email. Um, if there's any issue with the application, they're able to tell me like literally within five minutes of receiving it via email. And I'm able to address it with the family and overcome that barrier. Um, they meet with the family at San Francisco Housing Authority. A background check is run in about a week. The voucher is issued. And from there, we're really working on um, doing as much housing search as we can. Um, how that starts is the family usually has a minimum of one hour housing search with a housing specialist on site once a week. At that housing search appointment, we are first making a credit report um, and writing a self-reference letter and getting a landlord packet ready so the family is best able to present themselves. Um, we do the self-reference letter to kind of augment any problems that they might have with credit history to kind of speak about the goals and successes that the family has for the future. Um, try to pitch themselves to landlords in a way um, that can be um, more effective than just handing someone like an application that has very like little descriptive information on it. Um, we do the appointment, we model, we coach, we call all the landlords on Trulia and Craigslist of the day that's available. Um, and we ask families to do that on their own too. We try to give them scripts and handouts for, for them to be able to go through like a prompt. Um, when families aren't in the office, we are doing housing search on our own, going through all the websites, trying to create um, kind of like a network of landlords that we can work with that are there for us um, in the future um, too. Um, and once we're doing that, we find a landlord that wants to do a viewing. We take the families to the viewings. It's very hands-on work. We go into the community. Um, we go to viewings. We present our program. Um, we talk to landlords about why they should take Section 8. We're an advocate for the family um, if they have any issues that might make them seem like they might not the quality tenants, we address those straight front. Um, and that can take a while. Finding landlords in San Francisco who are willing to take Section 8 um, can take some time. So we are often going to multiple unit viewings with families. Um, 
But once we find a place, um, we're able to help the family and the landlord with the leasing process with Section 8. Um, we're able to support submitting all the necessary paperwork um, to San Francisco um, Housing Authority. And um, we're also, one of the benefits of our grant funding is that we're able to help fam families with deposit assistance as well. So we're the people that are paying the deposit um, for the units. And then I think one of the biggest successes of our programs is we're able to stay with families after they've been housed. So the families, um, after they've been housed, they have um, monthly home visits. The landlord has a person, myself or another housing specialist who they can call if they have any issues with working with the housing authority or with the tenant. The tenant has us to call if they have any issues with rental payment to the landlord or to the housing authority or, or anything with like paperwork to the housing authority. Um, and we're there for about, I usually work with families for probably a minimum of like one year after they've been housed, making sure that everything's happening. But we've worked with families for um, a few years after they've been housed too, just to ensure housing retention and stability, um, which has been one of the best parts of our program because of all the families that we've housed with Section 8, um, none have returned back to homelessness. So that's one of the successes, but it's a, as you can see, a pretty lengthy process of a lot of steps that we do. And I'd be curious to understand for housing specialists, for you and the, the other two that, that you work with, what are those specific you know, relationships or skills that you bring to that table uh, that maybe go beyond where child welfare could handle it? Yeah, so our relationship um, with the family is, is obviously very different than the relationship that the family has with their um, child welfare worker. We're focusing on one goal, which is housing, and our role in that is pure advocacy. Like we are literally there just to be advocates for the family the entire way through the process. Um, and we are not um, trying to follow through on the family completing other steps. We're supportive of them, obviously, competing, completing the case plan, and we try to be aware of all the other things the families have to do in order to be successful so that we're not making them overscheduled or overburdened with housing-related stuff. Um, but what we're able to do in being like a very supportive role is the family like has a relationship with us where um, it's very <laughs> goal oriented and um, it's often in that way, just a very rewarding relationship that's built on trust. We try to figure out where the family's at when it comes to their housing needs and make sure that we're meeting them along the way. Um, and I think it's been shown too um, in a number of ways that it's really hard to do both housing work and case management at the same time. So us being able to focus and do that housing work allows both the child welfare worker, but also the case managers that I'm working with too, to address all those is other issues. If a family were to come and meet with me one hour a week and I was trying to help them both locate childcare services and a home, you could see how that could take families much, much longer to define both. Yeah, this really points to a value of the housing specialist as a separate partner. I said partner, but a, it's a separate, it's a task in, in amongst itself. So, so Jocelyn, explain to me this relationship from the child welfare side. I'm not sure that I would um, put it forward necessarily as a different skill set. I think in many ways, there's a very similar skill set that both bring to the table. So I think, you know, like obviously meeting the family where they're at, you know, engaging with the family, listening. It is, in both cases, um, they're doing social work. And I want to be clear on that. I mean, the, the work that Kylie is doing is is focused on one thing. It's focused on housing. But 
But in many ways, um, you know, the skill set can be similar, although uh, Kylie has um, he's definitely developed some expertise in uh, housing inspection that she probably wasn't anticipating uh, prior to starting this job. But, um, you know, I think I think more than that, it's it's just the time and, and the ability to check in in a different way with families. Um, you know, Kylie did a great job of mentioning that that each resource plays a slightly different purpose in the family's life. Um, also, if you think about it, I mean, in, in, in a child, from a child welfare perspective, we don't want to be engaged um, with the family long-term. A, a long-term case is not a successful case um, necessarily. Sometimes it's necessary, but, um, you know, we're not looking to keep cases open for indefinitely until a family stabilizes. That isn't our role. Um, our role is really looking towards uh, the safety of the child, um, and then we kind of get out of get out of the family's life. That being said, um, there's a lot of work uh, that we see as valuable in terms of stabilizing that for family further and present preventing a reoccurrence of um, you know child welfare uh, case down the road. There's a there's a lot of stress that comes with sort of the instability that some of these families are facing and. Um, it definitely puts families at higher risk of child welfare involvement. So, uh, you know, one of the things that, that Kylie highlighted briefly, but I think is really important is that Kylie is able to, and, and her team are able to provide sustained support after the child welfare case closes. So, you know, um, it, it's definitely the case that we stay involved in these families' lives for a long time. And we're actually having families now who are perhaps referred to families moving forward four years ago that are actually just coming in now and saying, Hey, you know what, actually <laughs> that housing thing. And we're really, we set out with in FMF um, to, to kind of create the idea that the door would never close. And we're really proud of the fact that that we've been able to maintain this partnership in such a way that that's really played out. So I think just, again, I don't know that I'd, I'd emphasize a difference in skills. I think it's just a, being able to play that different role in the family's life and, and having that longer, that longer involvement to continue to troubleshoot uh, instability, even after the child is safe. And you know, you, you touch that it is a long process. And, and Kylie, one of the things you mentioned, just in terms of, let's say, uh, finding and locating documents, those vital documents, and you mentioned that that could take weeks, if not much more. So one of the things uh, in terms of where you guys are in San Francisco that was really beneficial that I'd like you to kind of dive into a little bit is what you guys did for transitional housing. In particular, um, explain Holloway House to me and the impact it's had on your work. I'd love to talk about that. So about halfway through families moving forward, we were able to um, have families be able to stay in a transitional house um, called Holloway House. Um, and having Holloway House um, was created um, after we realized that families who were entering our program um, really didn't have a really strong sense of stability and where, where they were staying night to night while they were working on doing things like create, collecting vital documents and just looking for housing in a very hard rental market. Um, because of that, our team, housing specialists and case managers had to spend a lot of time helping families with emergency shelter stay, but also staying in hotels and managing how to stay in an affordable hotel in San Francisco with our funding became a complete job on its own. Um, and because of that, our work in the beginning stages was very reactive. We were having to do a lot of crisis management, making sure families that we were forming really strong relationships with were just okay on the day-to-day. -day. 
having Holloway House allowed us to be proactive at our work. We were able to um, know that families were staying in one place. The families knew that they were staying in one place um, and that it was a stable place. We had amazing, uh, anecdotally, it was an amazing asset for my work because um, the families were less stressed, our staff was less stressed, and they were able to focus on doing housing search and engagement. Um, I saw more positive outcomes from that in my work. Um, and it was cool too, because the child welfare, welfare workers too also knew where families were at. They knew that they were in a safe environment. Um, we had case managers um, who were on site at Holloway House that could help families address any issues that they had with transportation, bring them resources, um, access to technology. Um, I was able to go there for families um, when it was harder for them to come to HVP and do housing search at Holloway House. Um, they had access to like BART and transportation to get places easier too. Um, it was just a huge asset from, from my standpoint, um, the time to housing, to getting housing was um, definitely sped up by families being at Holloway House versus them trying to stay in hotel or shelter. Um, and yeah, I think it was a huge piece as to why bringing families home now is a success too, because families from the get-go have a place that they can go and stay. So clearly not every state, not every agency has the luxury of, of something like Holloway House. So for those that may be interested, I'm sure the question then comes out, this couldn't have been something that HPP or HSA did on their own. So give me a sense of all the work that had to happen to make Holloway House exist. Yeah, I mean, we actually got incredibly lucky. Um, I, I should mention that one of the benefits uh, to us of this program has been that the executive director of the Human Services Agency, Trent Rohr, has really been an advocate for this program um, along the way. And uh, one of the ways in which that benefited us is that this property essentially became available in, in the city family. And uh, Trent was able to, uh, you know, think of our program and actually sort of um, advocate for us to be able to use that, that resource. Um, so, you know, we're actually repurposing a, an existing house that was previously used for another one of our programs and transitioning it um, for this purpose. So the Human Services Agency um, obviously um, brings a lot of different expertise to the table uh, so that once we knew that we had this property, we were actually able to work with our contracts division and our excellent facilities division uh, to get the house prepared. So there was a team within our, my agency that was really able to do that work of getting it ready for the families to move in. You know, we did have some say in terms of making sure that, that the property was safe and accommodating for families and, and worked well. Um, but we were able to, to kind of do that work in-house. Um, and then we actually, we needed a property management company. So we actually put out a separate contract um, for a group that had a uh, prior experience in running shelters, um, the Hamilton Family Program, and they were actually able to run the, the nuts and bolts of the house for us. So uh, we were pulling together um, a number of different resources uh, and getting a little bit creative. And then, um, you know, I can, I can have Kylie talk a little bit about uh, sort of the additional work that 
they did to take that from a house to a home, if you will, um, because I think that's really important as well. One of the ways that we were kind of able to make Holloway House um, fit into our program once it first opened is we actually had one of the case managers um, transition to being at Holloway House um, once or twice a week um, for the full day. Um, And they were able to be there and help families um, mediate any conflicts that might arise. make sure that they were following the chore schedule that there was there, um, but also help them with doing things like finding um, affordable places to buy groceries because um, there's like two full kitchens that the families are able to use there um, and um, practice like housing skills and then also um, be able to um, like just play too. We had like a garden that families were able to go in and engage in. We had people come and like teach the families how to garden. We had um, like holiday days where we would go and do like Thanksgiving or Christmas. And we tried to make sure that families felt um, welcome there and supported. Um, And that was super beneficial because as I said before, having that stability um, really made it easier for families to engage with us and for them to be able to access our services. And just to add um, to that, that was a huge benefit of having a partnership with uh, with a nonprofit organization because they were able to leverage a huge um, sort of existing pool. It's, the homeless prenatal program is very well respected in the community and they were able to leverage a huge um, number of volunteers and, um, you know, other folks that have worked with them to to kind of provide things that we would, and, and private funders, to provide things that we would not have been able to provide, um, you know, as a government. Um, sadly, typically our invoices don't cover things like, you know, some some of the bells and whistles. Um, and Martha Ryan, who's the director of Homeless Prenatal Program, um, you know, just has amazing um, connections in the community. So she was really able to bring that to the table. Um, to make the to make the um, the house just have those extra touches, and we also had um, we also had um, other partners in the program too that were able to go to Holloway House and access it as a place to do their work. For example, we worked with Infant Parent Program and Families Moving Forward, um, which is um, therapists that work on strengthening the bond between child and parent, and they were able to go to Holloway House and do their work as well too. So we were able to bring in people to do things like help with gardening and people who could help with like getting stuff ready for holidays. But then we were able to bring in that clinical side too by helping our partners have a place where they could go meet with families where they were at and work on addressing the relationship with the child and parent and really just support the family there. Now, in part two of our conversation, we're going to explore a few critical keys to success for the program, particularly the importance of the strong relationship required not only with the San Francisco Housing Authority, but with other housing authorities in neighboring communities, because families may be able to find sustainable homes outside of your jurisdiction. A reminder that Information Gateway's new bulletin for professionals partnering with housing providers in your community is now available. Now, this dives deep into the barriers to stable housing, housing resources for professionals to explore, how to work with youth experiencing homelessness, and collaborating with local housing systems and housing providers. Uh, We've put up a a link to that publication on this episode's webpage. Just go to www.acf.hhs.gov slash cb and just search podcast. 
There's also a link to the Information Gateway web section specifically dedicated to housing and child welfare, so you can see what other states and local agencies are doing to address the issue and partner across their communities. We'll also point you to the Child Welfare Supportive Housing Resource Center and the National Center for Housing and Child Welfare. So hey, a reminder here, if you are searching for information, data, local contacts, or specific child welfare laws and policies in your state, you can head over to www.childwelfare.gov and find vetted and researched information, a full array of contact information for local agencies and support groups, a series of publications, and our state statutes database with more than 40 statutes searchable by state. Such a great conversation, and it's only part one. Part two will be coming out very soon, where we dive into how each entity, along with the San Francisco Housing Authority, shared roles, responsibilities, and how they communicated. Something that struck me from that part of the conversation was the phrase, if we don't have to say no, we're going to find a way to say yes. It's crucial to how these three organizations join forces and improve the project over time. So hey, be on the lookout for, uh, for part two. I want to thank Kylie Woodall and Jocelyn Everrode for joining me, along with you for joining this episode of the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. I'm Tom Oates. Have a great day. Thanks for joining us for this edition of the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. Child Welfare Information Gateway is available at childwelfare.gov and is a service of the Children's Bureau, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Administration for Children and Families. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Information Gateway or the Children's Bureau.